You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 24. We read God's word for us. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the word of the Lord. And we come today to Paul's teaching on marriage, particularly the text here before us that wives are to submit to their own husbands. Now, the notion of submission is itself just an offensive word to our culture today, especially when we apply it to the context of marriage and the idea that a wife ought to submit to her husband. Just simply uttering or reading out in public Ephesians 5 could be incendiary, inciting and bringing people's minds to immediately start thinking that we're advocating the oppression, the subjugation, the dominance over women. And so we begin to to think of a, a woman as we hear the word submit, we think of a woman who finds herself entrapped in a loveless, servile sort of marriage by which she's powerless and oppressed and helpless under her husband's authority. So one of the significant challenges of a text like this one is that it's so easy for us to import our cultural assumptions into the text and thereby prevent us from seeing the the beauty and the goodness of God's design for marriage and what Paul is actually teaching us here about marriage. So we can import these cultural assumptions in two ways. One of the ways that we can do this is that we can add our cultural preconceptions, our cultural assumptions to the Bible's teaching. So we can assume our stereotypes of so-called traditional gender roles that often stem more from the Victorian era than the Bible. So thus we can read our culture into the text we can judiciously sort of create a new law and try to enforce a cultural stereotype that actually isn't commanded in the Bible. So we can read Ephesians 5 and think, well, that must mean that every wife needs to be as docile and servile as June Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver. But secondly, there's another way we can import our cultural assumptions here that in our rejection of violent husbands and sinful distortions of marriage and abusive marriages, we can toss out the Bible's teaching, letting the illegitimate use of authority cause us to think that all authority is illegitimate. Yes, wicked men have and do use this passage to oppress their wives under their iron thumb, dictating what they wear, where they go, and sadly, often in even more sinful and sinister and violent ways. 
And in our rejection of the evil twisting of the Bible's teaching, we can be tempted to reject the Bible itself, ignoring and altering and sometimes even downright rejecting what the Bible says here plainly in Ephesians 5. So I invite all of us this morning, including myself, let's, let's strive as best as we can to put aside our preconceived notions of authority and submission in marriage, and let's strive, as we ought to do every time we pick up God's word, let's strive to hear it afresh and listen to what the Spirit of God might be teaching us. Where we have strayed from God's design in marriage and for marriage, may we repent this morning and conform ourselves to the pattern of God's word. And by God's grace, may we come to discover God's plan for marriage is wise and it is good. I plan to spend three sermons dealing with this section on Ephesians concerning marriage. So with the first sermon today, we focus on the wife. Next Sunday, we will consider the husband's responsibility specifically. And then on the third Sunday, we will examine how marriage is a picture of the union between Christ and the church. But for today, I want to give us a bit of an overview sermon on this section of Ephesians, particularly with this section of household codes as Paul begins to describe differing relationships of authority and submission and how God orders those relationships and how Christians should strive to live in them. But we will spend most of our time today thinking specifically about marriage, how God has designed and ordered marriage to function with the husband as the head of his wife and the wife being called to submit to her husband. So we will first this morning consider the household as a whole and this household code beginning in 522 and going on to chapter 6, verse 9. I'll give us a bit of an overview of this household code, including thinking through what do we do with our culture's immediate skepticism and submission about authority and social relationships. And then secondly, we will consider more specifically God's design for marriage And then thirdly, we'll examine practically the call of the wife to submit to her husband and what that looks like in practice in a Christian marriage. So let's first consider the household, authority in the spheres of our social relationships. We start with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And as we begin this section of Ephesians, we find ourselves entering into a new, new part of the book as Paul is helping us think through relationships in the household. So this is often called the household codes. In this section of Ephesians, Paul is giving the proper ordering of relationships, particularly for three spheres of of people, for husbands and wives, for children and parents, for masters and slaves. Martin Luther, the the German reformer, was to refer to these lists as the Hostafflen. It's German for house tables, household tables. Now, it was common in the ancient world for uh, household conduct to be properly stated in writing. It was a sort of genre of writing. Aristotle did it. Plato did it, giving instructions of what is the proper order for a household. Uh, Stoic writings did it. Even Jewish writings did this some sort of genre of writing that Paul employs here. But if Paul is borrowing from this known genre of household codes in Ephesians 5 and going into chapter 6, he infuses it repeatedly with the Christian gospel. So he might be following a similar pattern, but he's infusing in this Christological sense of what Christ has done and its implication for all these relationships. 
So while we as Americans champion autonomy and authority of the individual, the ancient world was very different than us, very different. The ancients had very different assumptions. In fact, the ancients assumed an implicit authority into the very fabric of society and culture that reflected a proper ordering of the created universe. So today, we tend to immediately think, this is our own cultural assumptions here, we tend to immediately think that authority equals tyranny, right? The two are synonymous. That's not the assumption of Paul or the entire scriptures for that matter. So we should critique and hold accountable those who exercise authority badly, but the Bible repeatedly presents without apology that God gives authority and that authority is to be used to serve and to help and to aid those who are underneath that authority. So when a person exercises the authority God has given them in the fear of the Lord, then it causes everybody under that authority to flourish. We see this in David's last words in 2 Samuel chapter 23. David says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's good and godly authority that scripture upholds. Authority is not by nature in and of itself tyranny. When used as God intends it to be used, those in authority over us are to be rightly seen as a gift from the Lord and a blessing to us from God. So submission to authority was for the ancient world, sort of the organizing principle of relationships. And even though we wouldn't like to think about it today, we're so got that rugged individualism that marks us as Westerners, you know, our society operates the same way, doesn't it? It's not all that different. Even though we like to think we're all independent and autonomous and free, we've got people in authority over us. All of us do. We have the government and its leaders and judges who create laws and enforce laws that require us to submit to those laws. We have police officers who have the authority given to them by the government to enforce the law when we break it. We have bosses who have the power over us to promote us or to fire us based off of our job performances. We have coaches who have the authority to determine whether the player goes into the game or whether he sits on the bench or whether he's cut from the squad. And of course, we submit ourselves to the authority of the local church who's been entrusted by Christ with the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose its members. So it shouldn't altogether shock us, right, that Paul would help us think through how do we describe how these different relationships of authority ought to be rightly exhibited for Christians in the context of marriage, parenting, and work. All of us, men and women alike, subject and submit ourselves to somebody we're forced to. And so for those of us who are Christian, we, we have chosen to submit ourselves. We have chosen to subject ourselves to the lordship of Christ because we have recognized his authority to be good and right. And so becoming a Christian means that Jesus is your savior, but he's also your Lord. He's your master. He's your king. And you have, of your own volition, chosen to place yourself under his authority. I have decided to follow Jesus. And so Jesus exercises his authority as the Lord, and he does it for our spiritual good. Authority is God's gift for the proper ordering of our relationships 
And it is a gift to be received gladly and to be steward, stewarded faithfully before God. So as we study this household code, we have to do remember a little bit the context of the book of Ephesians. Paul has described how God has redeemed us, how he has made us one in Christ. And as we receive the gift of Christ, flip back over to Ephesians chapter 1 real quickly. Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. He talks about how Jesus, as he redeems us, is exalted in authority. Look at Ephesians 1, starting in verse 21. That Jesus is exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ's headship, that's an important word we'll talk about more in just a second. His headship is one of authority over all the cosmos and over the church. And by his authority, Christ has formed, as we've seen in Ephesians, one new man in the place of the two. Jesus is tearing down divisions, making us one new man in Christ. So throughout Ephesians, we've seen Paul do a couple strategic moves that we have to keep in mind as we approach these household codes. One, Paul stressed the dignity of every person. Second, he requires that, and he states that all are equal before God. And then thirdly, that all believers have a unity in Christ. Dignity, equality, unity. That's what the gospel has done in our lives through Christ. And so as Paul is describing, starting here in Ephesians 5, these differing orderings of relationships, we have to remind ourselves what Paul has said. He's not contradicting what he said in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. He's not rebuilding walls of division that the gospel's already tearing, torn down. As differing relationships of authority are expressed, it should be inconsistent with the gospel Paul has been explaining to us. And as we exhibit authority and submit to authority, we should recognize that Paul intends for this authority to protect the dignity, equality, and unity that we have together in Christ. So in most English translations, verse 22 marks a new heading, a new section. So we have to remind ourselves, though, these, these little English headings are just put there by the editors of the Bible, right, who compile it and print it, the publisher. They're not original to the text. And so they are not original here. So verse 22 does start a new section in the letter, but Paul interlocks Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, with verse 22. And he interlocks it with, with two things that he does. First is that Paul begins this new section by not using a conjunction. He doesn't say, therefore, thus, right? He kind of just continues on the same strain of thought that he began in verse 22. Typically, when Paul starts a new pattern, he has that new conjunction that starts off. He doesn't do that here. Secondly, the way Paul makes the connection between verse 21 and verse 22 is that he uses the same participle, the same verbal form of submitting in verse 21 and verse 22. Thus, he makes a sort of verbal bridge between these two sections. Paul is pointing out here for us this connection. We don't want to miss it. Paul's pointing out in the context of the letter that rightly ordered Christian households that glorify God are rooted in the spirit-filled life that we talked about last week. Paul is pointing out here, it shouldn't surprise us that the world thinks that God's expectations for marriage are a bit foolish. 
Because living out God's ideal design for men and women in marriage requires spirit-illuminated minds to see the wisdom of God's design and to be spirit-empowered to actually put God's plan into practice. So while the text presents God's ideal for marriage for everyone, this is God's standard, God's design, whether you're a Christian or not, we have to remind ourselves that it's only God's people, only those who have the spirit of God, who, we, who will be able to live it out consistently in a way that glorifies Christ. But, but I think Paul also points out here the importance of the church community, particularly as we think about these spheres of authority and submission, including the household. We are to submit to one another first, verse 21. The Christian home is protected from the dangers of the abuse of authority under the attentive care of fellow covenant believers that we submit ourselves to out of reverence for Christ. So a Christian husband who exercises his headship while shirking back from the accountability of other Christian men, that's a dangerous thing. If we will honor the Lord in our families, we must be filled with the Spirit and we must humble ourselves to be submissive to other Christians, particularly in our local churches. So men, do not ask or certainly not demand your wife to submit to you if you will not submit yourself to the church of Christ. The, the one eager to exercise authority ought to first place himself under authority. First and foremost, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, but also to the church to whom Christ has invested his authority. So while Paul presents God's design for, for marriage and parenting and work, we have to recognize that sometimes our home lives don't quite fit very well in this description of what Paul's saying. Sometimes our, our lives, your life might fit a little awkwardly into this text due to living in a fallen world. And like today, various household situations existed in the first century. You had widows, you had orphans, you had freed men and freed women. Death was a constant threat, breaking up marriages. And many marriages ended with the death of a spouse quite regularly. Remarriage was very common just because death was so prevalent. Parents would die, forcing a child to be adopted and go into the care of another. Slaves would be freed, creating all sorts of new household dynamics. So all that to say, when we read Ephesians 5, we have to remind ourselves that Paul is giving us the normative pattern of the Christian household. But due to our differing circumstances, sometimes by our sin, sometimes by the sin of others, sometimes just the reality that we live in a fallen world, we find ourselves in less normative situations, right? We're single, we're divorced, we're childless, we have single parents, we're widowed, and more. So we have to trust and recognize the Lord and his providence in whatever your household circumstance might be. And we want to ask for God's help in applying God's normative pattern in these household codes to our unique family situations. And another word of caveat here, just before we get into marriage itself, we have to remind ourselves that Paul isn't commanding marriage in the text. Paul championed more than just about anybody else in the Bible, right? The, the gift of singleness, he himself was single and was glad of it, right? He championed it as not just a viable option for Christians, but one that he thinks is preferable. Go read 1 Corinthians 7. But celibacy in the, as, is a spiritual gift for the church, to serve the church. It's not to be chosen for selfishness and entitlement, 
most Christians will find themselves with sexual desires as God's sort of natural nudge towards the calling of marriage and family. But for those called by God to lifelong singleness, these sermons on marriage have a great deal of relevance for you as well. Because we want to learn how to properly pray and encourage your married brothers and sisters to be faithful in their families and faithful in displaying the gospel in their marriages. And Christian marriage singles, as well as your celibacy in your singleness, as we'll find out, pictures the gospel and ultimately our union with Christ. So we should all care about healthy marriages in our congregation. And for those of you who are single but long to be married, desire to be married, listen carefully, right, to the sort of husband, the sort of wife that God will one day call you to be. And for those of you who are married, let's really listen carefully, right, because we are called to express the gospel in our marriage. So let's secondly, let's look at marriage more specifically, God's design for husbands and wives. In the household code, Paul begins, the pattern is those under authority are addressed first, and then he addresses those in authority. And so he begins by starting with wives. He will start in verse 25 by giving a lengthier address to husbands and their responsibility in the marriage. But before we get into the the differences of roles between a husband and wife in marriage, we should probably start with some sort of definition of marriage. What do we mean when we talk about marriage in the Bible? And I think it's hard to find a better summation of what the Bible teaches about marriage than uh, from Pastor John Stott. Here's what he said. Marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman ordained and sealed by God preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing a permanent, mutually supportive partnership, and normally crowned with the gift of children. That's a good summary of what the Bible teaches when we talk about marriage. And over the coming weeks, we're going to see that marriage is God's idea, right? It's God's creation. And he intends it to be the most intimate and foundational social union that beautifully points others to the glories of Christ and the glories of the church. So while we can define Christian marriage quite easily from the Bible, Paul seeks to help us here with a more practical question. How should husbands and wives relate to one another in their marriage? How do they relate? How do they interact? Or perhaps put another way, how does our new identity in Christ change the way husbands and wives relate to one another? What does walking in wisdom and being filled with the Spirit of God, what does that mean in the context of marriage? In our passage today, Paul is striving to help us answer that question. So we see verse 22, wives are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So just right off the fact, we can say a few things, right? Women aren't required to submit to all men. What does the text say? Wives are to submit to their own husbands. And Paul also says they do so as to the Lord in verse 22 which doesn't mean that her husband functions as a sort of king or ruler over his wife or that the husband's authority over his wife is absolute. But that part of the wife's discipleship to Jesus means that she must recognize that her head, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given to her a husband who is to function as her head, to lead her and to serve her. 
And so by gladly recognizing and affirming her husband's headship, the Christian wife then therefore honors Jesus as the one who has created and ordered the relationship of marriage. And so the husband isn't Lord. Jesus is the Lord. But a wife should respond, have the inclination to follow her husband's leadership as if she's following Jesus himself. Verse 23 introduces the concept of headship. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. That raises a big question. What does it mean for the husband to be the head of his wife? Many will, will try to diminish the idea of a husband's authority in this text by suggesting that the Greek term for head, which is kephali, doesn't mean authority, but it means source or origin. And by trying to redefine the word, it's quite a stretch of an argument because Paul rather plainly connotes headship with authority, not just here, but all over the place in the New Testament. Dr. Wayne Grudem studied 2,336 instances of the word kephali or head in classic Greek literature and in non-classical sources like Josephus. And you know what he found? Here's his conclusion. No instances were discovered in which kephali, head, had the meaning of source or origin. So all throughout the ancient world, it's quite clear that what the word head means is implies authority. But what is perhaps most convincing of all is not what Greek literature said, but how does Paul use it in Ephesians? And of course, we've already looked at an important passage of where Paul used the word kephali earlier in the text. Go back to Ephesians 1 verse 22. Remember what he said? And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head, kephale, over all things to the church. And so the context is quite clear. When Paul uses that word head in Ephesians 1, he refers to the authority of Christ. So from Greek literature, the United Witness in the New Testament, as well as the internal consistency of Paul's use of the term in Ephesians, kephale, headship, refers to the sense of having an authority over another. So while headship communicates the husband's authority, we have to remind ourselves, though, that submission in no way implies inequality. Only differing roles for the husband and the wife as they serve in the marriage relationship. Paul makes this point really clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It talks about how we're all equal in Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So some try to use that verse from Galatians to suggest that the gospel abolishes gender distinction. That actually completely misses Paul's point, not only in Galatians, but contradicts what Paul says everywhere else in his letters. We don't become genderless in the gospel. That's not Paul's point. But that in our differing relationships, men and women in all these contexts, right, the gospel brings unity and equality between the two. So as Paul says in Ephesians, we are one new man, not two. We're one new man in Christ. But you might reject such a, a thought. You might object and say, well, you know, Pastor Justin, hasn't things changed quite a bit since the Greco-Roman world and that culture? You know, isn't a wife's submission culturally rooted as a reflection of the first century world? We've moved beyond that. 
After all, I mean, Paul talks about slavery here, and slavery's been made illegal in the West. And we now recognize it for what it was, a grave evil. And I would say, in a sense, well, you're, you are right, right? That, that Paul regulates the relationship between masters and slaves. But that is of an entirely different sort of relationship than between a husband and wife in marriage. Paul handles them very differently. Elsewhere in his letter to Philemon, this short little letter, Paul actually begins to use the truths of the gospel to decimate the logic of slavery. The master-slave relationship that Paul regulates here is one that was not rooted in creation, but in response to the reality of a fallen human culture. So while the scripture regulates slavery from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it never, never attributes it to God's created intention. In the New Testament, the gospel begins dismantling the practice of slavery. And sadly, we have to admit, it took a shamefully long time for the church to recognize that. But we have to remind ourselves as well, it was Christians like John Newton and William Wilberforce that actually worked to help see slavery undone in the Western world. So marriage is different, though, than slavery and, and the master relationship. Because as Paul talks about marriage, it's different because Paul doesn't root it, root the idea of the headship of the husband. He doesn't root it in culture. He roots it in creation. That's a very important difference. For Paul, God's original design for husbands and wives was established before the fall before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, before that first temptation. And therefore, Christians who live under the lordship of Christ should honor the goodness of God's created design. God is restoring all things in the gospel. He's not changing all things from his original created design. He's fulfilling it. So we don't have time to go to all these passages extensively. This is, these are important topics. I, I appreciate you being patient as we talk through them. But let me refer to you to one just for your reference that you can go back and study later. And it's an important passage for our day. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 12. And there, it's a fascinating passage because Paul roots the changing cultural application of a woman covering her head as a cultural expression of her femininity. And he roots that argument in the unchanging creation principle of God's design. So he writes in that text, he says, For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was the man created for woman, but woman for man. So he goes on to describe the sort of independency that men and women have, but, but he sees a sort of order to the creation that undergirds the, the cultural application, if you will. Man was made first, then Eve. And as the grounds of, this is what grounds for Paul, the man's headship over his wife. It's creation. Paul makes a very similar argument when he talks about women teaching in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. He makes his argument, I do not permit a woman to speak or to have exercise authority over a man. And then what's the reason for that, Paul? And he quotes from Genesis, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So as Paul can, considers the headship of a husband over his wife, the Bible states that this principle is ordered in creation. It's a part of God's design. That the cultural elements by which we express those differences, like head coverings, they change in application from culture to culture. But, Paul says, the, the man's headship over his wife is a creation principle, not a cultural one, and it's a creation principle that transcends all human cultures. So this is 
not chauvinism, but creationism. Verse 23 connects the husband and wife to the relationship between Christ and the church. Paul writes in verse 23, says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So the husband's headship over his wife as Christ's headship over the church isn't exactly the same. <laughs> they're, they're different in a lot of ways. Because why? Christ is the savior of the church. Jesus is the one who uses his authority of headship to save, to rescue, to forgive the church of her sins, to unite the church into himself. And so a husband is unlike Jesus in this sense. No husband is the savior of his wife. There's only one who has done that, and his name is Jesus. But to Paul's point, a Christian husband ought to use his headship in a like manner to that of Jesus, pouring out his life, pouring out himself for the spiritual good of his wife. Christ's headship and love is the template for Christian husbands. We'll talk more about that next time. But while in Greco-Roman context, we have to remind ourselves how absolutely foreign and shocking and revolutionary this passage was to the first century world. Because for the Greco-Roman ancient world, the authority of the husband was absolute. And the wife existed to serve the needs of her husbands. Notice how Paul reverses it completely in the gospel. For the ancient world, the husband used his authority for selfish ends. My wife is there to serve me, to do what I want to do. And Paul, what makes his instructions so revolutionary is he flips this whole system on its head in the gospel. Because the husband is to use his headship, his authority, not to be served, but to serve. We'll see more about this next week. But Paul's call in Ephesians 5.25 was revolutionary to the heavy-handed patriarchy of his day. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It would have been shocking to a first century man. And here we are beginning to see why God's design for marriage lived out by Christians is so breathtakingly beautiful and sweet and good. For Christians, authority is never to be used for selfish gain, but it is only to be used in service in ministry to others. Servant leadership is the biblical model of Christian leadership. The right to headship is not a right to entitlement, but it is an imperative to service. The God-given responsibility of the husband is to lay down his wants, his desires, his preferences for the good of his wife. That's what it means for a man to be ahead. Paul isn't simply applying Jesus's teaching here to the, con he, all he's doing is just trying to apply it to the context of marriage. This is exactly what Jesus said. Remember what Jesus says? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was Jesus who said in Luke 22, verse 26, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Paul's taking the exact same words of Jesus. He's just applying them to marriage. And this is exactly what Christ has done for us, isn't it? That he did not use his authority over us to punish us, but to redeem us. He uses his authority over us not to demand service from us, but what did Jesus do? He came and he washed our feet. Christ, as our head, lays down his life for us on the cross. 
by washing us and redeeming us and sanctifying us and uniting us unto himself. And so I, I invite you, friend, if you recoil at the very thought of authority, then you have never met Jesus, never met him, who is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and he humbles himself to the lowest of servants. I, I invite you to know this Jesus this morning. Humble yourself before him in repentance. Call out to him in desperate dependency and faith. Jesus will save you. He will save you. And then gladly place your life under his headship, uh, uh, under his authority as your Lord. And as those who know the love of Christ, husbands, if you know the love of Christ, you are to love your wife as Jesus has loved you. Thus, husbands will give an account to the Lord for their exercise of their headship. So husbands, let me just ask you, how are you exercising your headship in your marriage? Is your wife flourishing in the Lord because of your leadership? Or are you petty, selfish, and childish, looking to have things your own way? Do you lead your wife by denying yourself for the sake of her holiness? Are you the first to sacrifice in your family? Are you the first to give up? That's the call of headship. Just as Christ presents his bride to the church husband, so will one day you stand before God and give your bride to him. And how will the Lord judge the stewardship of your marriage? Did you love your life, wife like Jesus? You see, the authority of headship is a sacred responsibility. And from those with authority, God will demand accountability. And so a submissive wife then recognizes the burden of spiritual leadership and the responsibility that her husband has before God. And knowing that her husband, we pray, strives to, to love her like Christ, she gladly, voluntarily submits to him as she would to the Lord. And so she prays for him. She encourages him. She strengthens him. She supports him. While Paul will use the imperative verb twice to charge the husband to love his wife, to command, Paul does not use the imperative mood in calling for wives to submit. That's very important because submission should never be done under compulsion or by the enforcement of the husband, but it should be offered up willingly from a spirit-filled wife, courageous and devoted to the love of her husband and to the love of Christ. So why does Paul call for wives then to submit? It's such a loaded word. Why does, she, why does he call for wives to submit, but for husbands to love? Well, defined properly, as I'm trying to do for us here this morning, submission is but simply another vantage point to love. To submit is to give oneself up to another. To love is to give oneself up for another. Thus, the husband's authority over his wife is categorically different than the relationship between parents and children that Paul will talk about later in these codes. Another important observation to make here about the difference between the husband and wife relationship, Paul doesn't command wives to obey, but he urges them to be subject to their husbands in the gospel. But, you know, our world just tends to automatically think that subjection is the same as subjugation. But they're not the same. 
Subjection is voluntary. Subjugation is compelled. A Christian wife is to be subject to her husband willingly, voluntarily, yielding and deferring to her husband's authority as her head. Christian women who embrace their God-given role here in the text aren't, aren't oppressed, but they are courageously and freely choosing to live according to God's design for their flourishing. Submission is not a negative thing. I think we need to redeem the term and highlight it as a good thing that God has put in place. And so as we put this positively, wives then are charged to follow their husband's loving leadership in their marriage. That's what it means to submit. My, my ability to dance, as you might imagine, has always been very limited. I, I, I blame this largely on growing up as a Baptist peace, uh, preacher's kid, where uh, dancing was just typically frowned upon. Uh, but recently, Michael Clayton, uh, we were at a wedding the other day, and he encouraged Caitlin and I to start joining him in Victoria for ballroom dancing classes. But, you know, it's a neat idea, but my, my two left feet and my pride uh, prevent me from having the courage to, to go and attend such a class. But if you've ever watched a couple dance who really knows how to dance, as Michael and Victoria do, right? It's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch because the couple, the husband and the wife, the, and step with the music. They move in sync, two bodies, distinct, but yet working together in unison as one. One of the partners leads, the other follows. But with each step and twirl and movement, it expresses this sort of heavenly harmony. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And so it is with the Christian marriage. God has designed marriage to be a dance with both the husband and the wife working in complementary roles united together for the glory of God. A Christian husband should be tender in his leadership of his wife, and a wife should be eager to follow and to submit to the leadership of her husband. And the dance of marriage, done rightly, done in the power of the Holy Spirit, uniquely displays the beauty of the gospel to the world. That leads thirdly to a consideration I want to help us think through is, is the wife herself. What does it actually mean to submit to your own husbands in a practical sense? Look at verse 24. Paul tries to make his point as simple and as explicit and as direct as he can. In verse 24, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So I, I know that this extended discussion on the text concerning authority and headship and submission, all of this has seemed a little bit theoretical so far, important, but perhaps a little bit ethereal. So many of our wives at Redemption, I know, they long to live out this biblical vision. We have so many godly women and wives in this church. And I know the question you have is, okay, pastor, I agree with you. Now, how do I do that? <laughs> how do I live out this in practice? Well, I've found that submission tends to come easy for wives who have faithful Christ-honoring husbands. As the husband takes the initiative for spiritual leadership in the home, and as he does so and serves with selflessness, as he draws out his wife's heart in conversation, submitting to that sort of servant leadership tends to be just really easy and instinctive and joyful for a Christian woman. But sadly... It's all too common for, for men, even Christian men, to fail to live up to God's call for them as the head. So when we husbands fail to exercise our headship according to the, the commands of Christ, 
we put an undue and difficult burden upon our wives. While the right exercise of authority is a blessing to our home, our failure as husbands will bring misery to those in the home. So perhaps in applying what it means for a wife to submit to her husband, what does it mean for a wife to submit in everything to her husband? Perhaps it'd be better to ask, what should a Christian wife do under ungodly leadership? That's really where the friction point is. How do I submit to a husband who is ungodly and who is not leading me well? And the scripture's wives are called to submit to and respect their husbands, even if they are ungodly, even if they're unbelievers. Peter tells wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, or they haven't heard the gospel, they don't believe it, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful leader, uh, your respect in, in your conduct. You see, a Christian woman should never knowingly marry an unbeliever. Such a marriage will bring a life of affliction and heartache. Let this be an encouragement to our, our Christian ladies not to settle for a man who does not deeply and demonstrably loves the Lord. In other words, you can see it in his life, that his love for Jesus is not just a confession over a conversation, but it is the, the full scope and tenor of his life. But many Christian women in the first century were married. They heard the gospel. They believed in the gospel and their husbands did not. And so they found themselves converted in marriages where they are married to an ungodly man. So we have to remind ourselves that as these ladies are thinking through this, Paul is addressing them, giving counsel and encouragement. It creates relational difficulty for a wife following Jesus under the headship of a husband who doesn't love Jesus. And let that be a, an encouragement to you ladies, that it is better to be single your entire life than settle and marry for an ungodly man. But if you are in such a marriage, the scriptures admonish you to remain faithful to your husband to remain married to your husband, honor him, and let the conduct of your life be a testimony to the gospel you believe, hoping that the Lord, through your conduct, might save your husband by your witness. And ladies, just to be clear, it's just so we're not confused, submission does not mean enduring your husband's violent outbursts if the marriage becomes abusive. If that's the case, Leave, separate, and get help immediately. That is not biblical submission. So when it comes to living out submission, a wife is ultimately subject to the Lord, not her husband. We've made that point a few times this morning. As Peter says in Acts, we must obey God rather than men. That applies not just to the Sadducees or to the governing authorities, that applies to your husband as well. If your husband charges you to disobey God's word, you refuse to do it. The headship of Christ always trumps the headship of your husband. So never follow your husband into sin. Also remember that submission to your husband does not mean that you can't question your husband's reasoning or tell him his error or tell him how you really feel and think about things. Doing so is not rebellious against your husband's leadership. Your husband is not Jesus. If you haven't found that out yet, then I'm not sure what's going on in your marriage, right? He's not. 
your husband will fail repeatedly and frequently in the exercise of his headship. So if you are married to a Christian husband, it's important to remember that you're not only relating to him as his wife, but you're also relating to him as a fellow member of the household of God. You won't always be his wife, but you will always be a sister in Christ. So you share, wife, the same Holy Spirit that your husband has if he's a believer. And the Holy Spirit will often use you as our wives to provide needed corrections that we husbands so desperately need. Typically, husbands and wives are members of the same church. Thus, you have a responsibility to your husband as you would to any other member in this congregation in the fulfillment of our church covenant to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. As you live out the church covenant in this church family, your husband is not exempt from your ministry in that area. So a husband should have the humility to see his wife as a God-given means of grace for his sanctification as a fellow believer. Kent Hughes put it this way. He says, a Christian wife can stand with Christ against her husband with a humble, loving spirit that indicates her longing to honor his headship. And he says, the attitude is, of course, key. So submission does not mean holding back your feedback on your husband's life or leadership, but it means expressing it in a way that properly honors him and respects him as your head. So you do not communicate your concerns to him with the sort of belittling, nagging, critical spirit, or communicate those concerns with a motherly condescension that demeans him. Don't be fault-finding. Don't be a quarrelsome wife as described in the book of Proverbs. Remember Proverbs 21, verse 9? It is better to live in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So how, how do you then, wives, express critique and respect to your husband as your head? Well, for you wives who are younger in the faith, striving to live out this biblical vision in marriage, let me just encourage you to find older, godly, mature women in this church and ask them how and watch how they do it. I hold my own wife up to you as an example of this, whose loving but needed critique of my life has often and frequently been life-giving and respectful of my headship as her husband. Our, our perversion of God's design for marriage tends to manifest itself in a lot of different ways, even in a Christian marriage. Husbands tend to err either on the side of domination or passivity in their leadership. Wives tend to err either in usurping the leadership of their husband or by becoming servile to their husband's sin. A godly wife honors her husband's leadership while encouraging and helping and even guiding her husband to follow the Lord with greater faithfulness. So church, much more can be said. Much more will be said in the coming weeks. But may the Lord help us to see the beauty and to embrace God's design and the good gift of marriage. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to officiate weddings. And I used to do nothing but funerals. Now I seem to do nothing but weddings. And I love it because one of the, 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 my favorite things to do as a pastor is to officiate weddings because I get the best seat in the house at a wedding. Where I can see everything. I'm standing up front. 
I have, a, I have a close up of the expectant husband standing beside me with his trembling jaw and tears of joy trickling down his face as he prepares to watch his bride walk down the aisle into the room. I can see the eyes of the congregation looking right at me, right? And, and they've got anticipation in their eyes. When I tell everybody to stand, everybody stands and, and looks around and tries to get the best view with great suspense for when that beautiful bride will walk down the aisle. And of course, I get to see the bride walking down the aisle with clarity and her radiant beauty. And of course, as she walks down the aisle, she beams with a smile that spreads wider and wider with each step she takes towards her husband. I find myself getting emotional in those scenes for a lot of different reasons, because not only do I get to stand up there and relieve the joy of 21-year-old Justin watching my own bride walk down the aisle, but above all, it reminds me reminds me of the coming day of the Lord. And the church, the bride of Christ, will be presented before Jesus in all of his, her splendor and holiness and radiance. The reason I love weddings is because every time I go to them, I think about the gospel. And as Christian wives embrace God's design for them in their marriage, they testify of that coming day of the Lord when we as a church will be united to our head and savior for all eternity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you would use your authority over us to serve us, to lay down your life for us. Fathers, we consider marriage. We pray that we would be setting our attention on that great day when we will be at the wedding feast of the lamb. Lord, we long for the day where we could be fully united to you and that great consummation day of wedding. But Father, I do pray for our marriages. I pray specifically for our wives. Lord, help them to see, as countercultural as it is increasingly becoming, Lord, help them to see the wisdom of your word, the goodness of your word, that even though the world mocks, Lord, may they see it as a proper way of expressing their discipleship to Jesus. And Lord, may you strengthen our marriages, husbands and wives alike. And Lord, as we proclaim the gospel by our words, may we exhibit it in our marriages. And so give testimony to that great day, that great wedding to come at the end of the age. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.